Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to actually look at a couple passages this evening. As you recall, typically in the evenings, this will be more uh, instructive uh, rather than working our way through uh, a book of the Bible like we do in the mornings. We're working our way through topics. And what we're doing now for the spring, of course, uh, is looking at what the Bible says about the church. If you recall, uh, one of the things that we've uh, tried to do uh, is to demonstrate uh, that the scriptures have an awful lot to say about the church, much more about the church than if you simply uh, did a word search of the word church in the Bible. Uh, you find that the church conceptually is something that's not simply relegated to the New Testament, but extends all the way back uh, to the Garden of Eden itself. It, it speaks of the redeemed body of believers, those secured and those purchased by Christ And as we've looked at various aspects, the various metaphors that the Old and New Testaments give regarding our relationship to Christ as the head of his church, as the the groom of his church, uh, as the king of his church, as the cornerstone of his church, Uh, so also uh, we need to look at other aspects as well. Uh, Two weeks ago, if you recall, we looked at the first half of this handout that's before you, Roman numerals one and two. We looked at the, what we call the church invisible and the church visible. Uh, there are not two distinct churches that we are speaking of the same church from two various aspects, two various vantage points. When we speak of the church universal, or I'm sorry, the church invisible, we're speaking of all the elect Well, one of the things that we recognize is that those who attend church, those whose membership names are on the roster of a church, does not necessitate that they are necessarily part of the redeemed, uh, of that church invisible. In other words, what we say is the visible church is a mixed bag. It's full of believers and unbelievers. uh, unbelievers. You have uh, professing Christians, and then you have some people uh, who are pretending to be Christians, those things that uh, will not be uh, unveiled in some respects until the last day. Uh, And then we also looked at the local and universal church, uh, uh, facets of the church, that each individual congregation is constituted as a church in itself, Uh, but we also speak of the church worldwide uh, as the church, both uh, singular and we can speak of churches plurally. And those references you see before you are simply to show the various ways in which Scripture uh, has us uh, direct our attention to the nature of the church. Well, tonight what I'd like us to do is to look at two more aspects of the church, and uh, just to let you know where we, where we stand in the midst of this. Next week, um, David Wright will be preaching. Uh, uh, David's a licentiate, of course, in our presbytery, and so typically the second Sunday evening of the month we'll have him preach. So he'll, he'll finally get to tell us what's going on in Daniel 10, uh, and so all your answers will be, uh, questions will be answered, uh, so save those for him. Uh, and not for me. Uh, and then, of course, our third Sunday evenings, we typically work through a psalm, so we'll do Psalm 2. But then at the end of the month, we'll move on to the marks of the church. But tonight, what I'd like us to do is to focus on Roman numerals 3 and 4. I'd like us to consider the church's organism and organization. And then secondly, I'd like us to consider the church uh, as the church militant and the church triumphant. If you see here in First John uh, chapter 1, in which... Um, well, apparently my iPad decided to shut off. Um, we'll do this the old-fashioned way, right? Since we were jumping through so many passages, I brought my iPad to do this, but it's decided to rebel against me. First John chapter 1, verse 3, that which we have seen, this is the Apostle John speaking, 
or writing, that which we have seen and heard, speaking of the incarnate work of Christ, we proclaim also to you, why does he proclaim it? Here's the purpose. So that you might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy might be complete. Now, before we begin this study, let's have a brief word of prayer. Gracious God and Father, we do ask that you'd bless uh, this study as we consider uh, various facets of your church uh, that we uh, might know the great benefits that have been given to us in Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I want you to notice this. There's a, there, there are certain benefits that accompany the gospel. We see these various benefits uh, recounted throughout the New Testament, but one of the emphases we see here, even in the opening verses of 1 John 1, is the great life together, that communal life that we have together uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that John preaches the gospel so that you might have fellowship with us? And then he has that extra line, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son. So there is a dual fellowship that takes place in the life of the church. Uh, The more foundational life is the the life that we have in our own communion uh, with uh, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Indeed, our fellowship is with uh, the Father and his Son, and of course it comes by the Spirit uh, uh, on the basis of the work of Christ, what he has accomplished in his incarnate ministry by his death and resurrection. But what John is bringing into view here is that it's not just a me and my Bible type of Christianity, that for all who trust in Christ, not only are we united to Christ and have that vertical fellowship uh, with God, but now we are bound to one another through Christ. That dual fellowship there, and so we see that there is a communal life to be found in the church. Uh, The church is not simply a a place where you come as if you're coming to a lecture hall uh, to hear some type of special presentation like you would uh, on a college campus on a Friday night. Uh, There is a real life together that is shared together. That word there for fellowship, the Greek word there, and you'll very rarely hear me throw around the Greek word from the pulpit, the Greek word here. Uh, is, is, is koinonia, and you don't have to know that, but one thing to notice uh, and to recognize is that word is translated about a ho- half a dozen different ways in any given particular translation of the Bible. It's used to describe the fellowship that we have with one another. It is used, to des- it is used in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to describe uh, uh, the diaconal offering that is collected for uh, the poor in Jerusalem. It is used to describe the the supper that we have, uh, that Christ lays before his people as an ordinance. Uh, All these various facets of the church, the the gospel ministry is itself spoken of as a koinonia. In other words, nearly every facet of the church life in one place or another in the New Testament, whether it's translated as communion, whether it's translated as fellowship, whether it's translated as participation, whether it's translated as service or offering, all point to the same thing, that these things reflect the fact that we have been bound together through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something that distinguishes the church from the world. Uh, Jesus himself says, as we saw some of those various metaphors uh, with respect to the church, John chapter 15, Jesus says, uh, 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 echoing the imagery of Isaiah chapter 5, I'm the vine, My father is the vine dresser. You are the branches. 
The only way you'll, be, you'll bear fruit is if you are connected to Christ, that there is a vital union to Christ that is found through faith and faith alone. But as each branch is connected to the vine, those branches are now bound to other branches as well. Christ is our life. There's that, there's that secret uh, uh, power to be found in faith in Christ uh, that, that gives life, a, a life that, that speaks of more than simply uh, being able to breathe or walk or eat, but a life that is found in righteousness and peace and joy, the deliverance from the penalty of sin, the deliverance from sin's power, the cleansing from the filth of sin, uh, reconciliation and adoption that deals uh, with the alienation of sin. Uh, every uh, uh, um, negative benefit, every consequence of sin has been dealt with at the cross. And Christ bore that curse of sin at the cross for us. That we might enjoy that, not simply as individuals, but that we might really enjoy that together. And so here in 1 John, what, uh, what John is getting at is that there's a real joy to be had. That the joy that is found in the life of the congregation is itself an evangelical witness of the life that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a communal life that distinguishes the church from the world. Uh, we're not going to get into all of these uh, particular uh, verses, but I have before you various uh, passages that you can read uh, on your own uh, throughout the course of the week. This is designed as something of a, if you're looking for something for family devotions, uh, I'd encourage you to use this and to look at these passages to really think about what Scripture says. You think of James chapter 4 in terms of the distinction of the church from the world. James says this, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's a real uh, a DTR moment that's going on here, a defining of the relationship. Paul himself will say in 1 Corinthians 10, you can either serve God or you can serve Baal, but you can't serve both. You, know, you think of the situation of a, of a husband who takes his wife out for Valentine's Day. He treats her to a nice, uh, lovely meal uh, at a restaurant, uh, assuming that there's a restaurant to be able to take her out to that's open. Uh, he buys her flowers, uh, has a really wonderful time. Then he takes her home, and then he says, I'll see you later. I'm going out with another woman. How many of us would say, well, that's perfectly acceptable? None of us would. Even if the guy says, well, I gave her quality time. I bought her flowers. What's the big deal? She's asleep. It's not even like I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, uh, uh, cutting time off with her. She's asleep. I'm just going to go have some fun on the side. Everybody, we all know that there's something wicked about that. But that's the same thing that is presented before us over and over and over again in the Scriptures. You can either serve God or someone else, but you can't have both. You can't have a little fun on the side with one of these while you're trying to serve the other. There is an exclusivity to this bond, to this relationship that takes place that distinguishes us from the world. 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John speaks in absolute unequivocal terms to call you, uh, as, as Brett said earlier, to choose this day whom you are going to serve. All that is in the world, here's, he's defining the world, the desires of the flesh, uh, the desire, that word there is lust, um, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It is not from the Father, but it is from the world. 
The world is passing away and so are all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Which will you choose? The church is united to Christ and participates in benefits that will not pass away even when the sun and the moon and the stars fall from the heavens. Even as the mountains are shaken and cast into the ocean, as Psalm 46 tells us, there is still nevertheless a city that makes glad the inhabitants of Zion, the city of the living God, a river whose streams make glad its inhabitants. This is speaking of the church. So there's a real life to be found here in distinction from the world. And so we speak here of the church as organism. There's a familial aspect to it. We are now uh, considered to be blood-bought brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is our elder brother. We are his adopted uh, brothers and sisters. To where we now have a bond that runs deeper than blood. At least the blood that courses through our veins. But the church is not simply an organism. The church is also an organization. We shouldn't be surprised at that as we've already seen uh, when we began this series that the church is seen to be the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. Christ is king. A king has a kingdom. A kingdom has a government. That government has laws and ordinances. It has officers, even processes for judicial matters, even matters such as discipline. And so we should not be surprised that throughout the New Testament, Christ will speak of his particular kingdom and the manner in which he rules and governs his church. He governs his church by his word and his spirit through the implementation of officers. Ephesians chapter 4, when Christ ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. What are those gifts? Well, when you look at the litany of gifts that are given in Ephesians 4, they are ministry of the word gifts. The foundation of the apostles and prophets, uh, that special, non-repeatable ministry in that first generation, but then you have that repeatable uh, ministry that is passed on from generation to generation in terms of evangelists, teachers, and pastors. These are seen to be God's good gifts to his church, that we might grow into maturity, that Christ's flock might be uh, governed, that there, might, there, there would be a process whereby the church would remain pure. Uh, we're going to look at the process of discipline in a few weeks. But part of the purpose of discipline is not just to preserve the peace uh, and purity of the church and its unity, but it also speaks of vindicating the honor of Christ above all, because Christ has come to claim a spotless bride. And so the church is an organism. Sometimes you hear that language, well, the church is just an organism, so we shouldn't have laws, man. That's only half the truth. It is true the church is an organism, but it is also an organization. It is not either or, it is both and. There's a difference be had, or I should say a distinction to be had between the two. They're both uh, quite important. One is familial, the other is legal. There's a danger that happens to a church if they fall to one extreme or the other. Uh, I uh, uh, was in a church in the Midwest a number of years ago uh, that was undergoing a, a particular problem 
Uh, I may have mentioned this before, at least in private to some people, um, but without going into great details, there was a church member who had been caught in some very gross, scandalous sin, some, some really dark sexual sin that had been habitually, uh, there was a massive cover-up, there was ongoing practices uh, of some, s- such stuff that, that we shouldn't speak of from the pulpit. But you know what? Here's a guy who became convicted under the ministry of the Word. He was actually an officer in the church. He was a deacon. And as he heard the word preached, he heard the the reading of the law. People who sat around him, this is what ended up tipping off the fact that there was a problem. One night there was a reading of just simply the Ten Commandments, and it got to the Seventh Commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And all of a sudden you just heard this guy go, oh, so convicted under the ministry of the Spirit by the preaching of the word. And he comes as his own accuser, saying, I've sinned grievously. This is, uh, here, is, here it is. I've been covering up this dark lifestyle for years. Here's all the receipts. Here's everything that I've done. And there are a number of elders who said, we have to sweep this under the rug. Why? He's my third cousin. What's this going to do to our Sunday family potluck lunches? See, there's a great importance to, there's a great value to see the church as a, fam, a familial entity. But if you lose the legal facet and the legal nature of the church, you won't conceptually know how to reckon with real sin when sin has to be reckoned with. This is, in fact, a kingdom. A kingdom with a king, a kingdom with laws, and a kingdom with officers. But there's also an, uh, another danger that falls if we fall into the other side. If we simply see this as, uh, as a legal organization and entity, all you're going to want to do is if somebody sins against you, you're wanting to file charges and bring lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. Uh, I, you know, there's a, a church I was at, an, another church I was at a number of years ago, uh, where anytime somebody had an argument with a guy, the guy would email the pastor saying, I just, this person disagreed with me on that. Uh, I, I need the verses so that you can correct them so we can begin the Matthew 18 process of discipline. <laughs> it was just a regular conversation. You just disagreed. So what if, you know, <laughs> you think of a different football team should win, you know, but, but this guy had such a legal mindset that he could only relate to people uh, on paper in terms of charges and judicial consequences. But what we see here, when we look at, again, looking at aspects of the church, think of this as looking at a a multifaceted jewel. And we're looking at the church from its various facets and dimensions. All of these are necessary to understand our doctrine of the church, be it as the church visible and invisible, be it as the church local or the church universal, be it as the church's organism or organization. These are all important. But yet there is still one other aspect that I'd like us to consider this evening. You see this here on, on the last uh, Roman numeral here, the church militant and the church triumphant. Whereas the, uh, the church's organism and organization deals with the organic nature versus the, uh, uh, the organizing feature of of the church. Here, the focus is more uh, in terms of locale, uh, the church on earth versus the church in heaven. The church militant speaks of all that the church right now is undergoing in this present wilderness here on earth. 
There are three descriptive adjectives that Scripture uses to describe what we uh, call the church militant. You have in this handout here before you the church as a suffering, sojourning, and soldiering church on earth. In other words, the church here on earth are a band of suffering pilgrims in holy combat. And what we see in the New Testament is that these particular concepts overlap even in the very same passages. You think of 2 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul tells Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. Philippians 1, 29 and 30, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also that you should suffer for his sake. In other words, suffering is a great benefit of the gospel. Really racks the mind. How is that a good thing? How is it the fact that, the, the fact that this congregation is going through a time of troubling and, uh, and, and, and tribulation right now, we say this is all part of God's handiwork to conform us more to the image of Christ. Not all things are good, but Romans 8 tells us that God being good, being the most good, works all things together for good. Where he'll even take a cross and an unjust death and work it out towards the salvation of his elect. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 18, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. You see over and over again this repeated category that we have to have implanted in our brains, that the church on earth is suffering, and that suffering will maintain its course until Christ's return. Or until we make it to heaven. Suffering is a distinguishing feature of the church. That's what we've seen as we've been waking our, making our way through 2 Corinthians in the mornings. But not only is this a that the church militant is a church that suffers in the midst of holy combat, we are also a sojourning, sojourning church. We're a band of fellow pilgrims. Uh, Hebrews 11.13 puts it uh, like this. That these all died in the faith, speaking of the saints of old, not having received the things that they were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. This world is not our home. One of the, the hymns that we sung this evening, when the roll is called up yonder, reminding that us that our citizenship primarily is not to be found in the United States of America. Our citizenship is in heaven, and so we are bound to abide by the code of conduct of the citizenship of that heavenly kingdom. But because our citizenship lies elsewhere, we're just pilgrims. Our green card is in the U.S., but it is set to expire. 1 Peter 1 begins by saying this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. And he says later in that chapter, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The church is a church of refugees. Where our identity is not found in worldly politics, 
but our identity is found in union with Christ that is found and received by faith and faith alone. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, there's that sojourning metaphor, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Again, notice that overlap. We are sojourning soldiers. Uh, yeah, there's a... Um, those of you who uh, have taken a Greek history course in college, you probably have read uh, Xenophon's The Anabasis, uh, the great expe- expedition where a group of uh, mercenary soldiers had made their way into the Persian Empire, and guess what? They get stuck and they have to come back, and so there's, they're kind of a roving band of warriors having to make their way back home. That is uh, what the church is. We are a band of soldiers and exiles. Hebrews chapter 3, actually the whole book of Hebrews deals with the, uh, the pilgrimage metaphor. That is the, one of the guiding, uh, it's the spectacles, it is the lens through which we are to view our identity as a body here on earth, as a collective corporate body. Our job is not to have a takeover uh, of the state capital uh, to put in, and I didn't mean that in the, the sense that we saw a couple weeks ago, although that's, we shouldn't do that as well, that's bad, don't do it. Um, but our, our job is not simply to try to put Christians in office, though that's a good thing. It's, it's perfectly okay for a Christian to serve in office. We see that in our confession of faith, you see that in Scripture. But, but our job is not to try to transform uh, the, 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 the nation in that sense. Our job is to be salt and to be light. Our job uh, is to be a faithful witness. Like Jeremiah, who was faithful in all that he did, but nobody listened to him. But it doesn't mean uh, that Jeremiah was a failure. See, the, the, the litmus test, the gauge uh, for whether or not we are a successful congregation, so to speak, a vibrant or vital, uh, a vibrant con- congregation is not uh, whether or not um, we have 400 people occupying uh, the seats in here. Although I would love to see that. There's that great, great hymn, Lord, we long to see our, your church is full. The fact that we have all these empty seats, I hope uh, that the Lord will use uh, Westminster as a means to, to, to bring in the lost here uh, in the valley. But that, the, the numbers is not the litmus test. It's not the determinant for whether or not we are faithful uh, or whether or not we are successful. Obedience is. Are we being obedient to the word according to the principles of what God commands? And then we are soldiers. Philippians one twenty nine. we are engaged in that conflict. I've already read some of these passages to you, and we've seen those before. So that when we talk about the church militant, we're speaking of the church as a community on earth that suffers, that sojourns, and that soldiers on. Uh, waging war not against in, in some type of Christian jihad, against some type of political entity, but waging war against the passions of the flesh. Second Corinthians 10, uh, the weapons with which we fight are not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and strongholds that we would bear a faithful witness in the midst of darkness. That is the nature of the Christian fight. And yet it is one in which the church struggles and toils in this life. And yet we can also speak of the church as the church triumphant. 
On one, in one uh, respect, we could speak of the church triumphant as each individual here being a believer uh, dies and passes on to glory. There's no more fighting to be had. Getting to behold the sight of your Savior. And yet at the same time, reading Revelation, recognizing that even the saints in heaven now are disembodied, waiting for the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of the dead. The saints in heaven still praying, how long, O Lord, until justice is meted out on the earth. And so when we speak of the church triumphant, primarily we are speaking of the church in its full glory when Christ returns. That this ongoing war is not a war of attrition that will go on indefinitely forever. But that this war has an actual terminus. It has an end point. An end point that is found at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter says this, In this very thing you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Note that suffering language. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is indeed tested by fire, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, at the return of Jesus Christ. His unveiling as it were. Though you have not seen him, yet you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him still. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith that is the salvation of your souls. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive that unfading crown of glory. The language of triumph. You think of uh, the great scene in The Return of the King where Aragorn is finally crowned as the king. The king has finally come to, to, to claim uh, the throne that was his. The actual coronation is the symbol of triumph. And here we are said as the church to receive that unfading crown on the day of Christ's return. And yet, so much of the emphasis in the New Testament focuses, although with the great hope of the church triumphant, so much of the New Testament focuses on what does it look like to be part of the church militant, to be part of a church that suffers and soldiers on and sojourns. And it's with that in mind uh, that over uh, the coming weeks we will consider other facets of uh, the church. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for what scripture tells us concerning the church. We ask that you would bless us uh, and help us to understand that we might know the great benefit that comes of trusting in you, that we have been united to your Son, but also that we have been united to one another uh, by your Spirit's work. Bless us, we pray, as we go home. Keep us safe through the week ahead, that we might return next week, giving thanks and praise to the God of the refugee, the exile, the poor, and the widow. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.